Bible, will you please turn to Genesis chapter 32. Continuing our study through Genesis, and we left off last Sunday in verse number 21. So we continue beginning in verse number 22, and we go to the end of the chapter, Lord willing. Father, we ask that you'll simply speak to us as we open your word. We do not want to hear the words of a man. We do not want to hear our own thoughts echoing back. We want to hear you. So help us, please, to listen. Please speak to us, your servants, as we hear. Amen. When I was a boy growing up in the 90s, One of my favorite things to watch on TV was WWF. You know what the WWE is. E comes before F, but WWF came first. And it was a lot cooler. Just as fake, but really cool. I loved watching. I loved uh, paying attention to all the wrestlers. I kept track of who who was who and... Where, was, where is this guy from and his record and all of that? Even after I found out it wasn't real, and that was a gut punch. I realized I still liked it. I didn't just like watching wrestling on TV. I liked doing it. I remember one time going to a friend's house when I was, I was probably 10 years old, maybe a little bit older. And we went into his bedroom, and we took all the mattresses off the bed and put them on the floor, and we made a ring. And we practiced body slamming each other and other uh, things that we could find around the room, and just had a good time uh, pretending to be our WWF superheroes. And of course, uh, maybe you haven't heard, but my my dad, my mom and dad are here, so this reminded me of it as I was thinking about this. When I was growing up, for a very short time, Monday nights were wrestling nights in the Mingi home, and we would wrestle. It was usually uh, me and my brother versus my dad, and the rule was we would go until someone cried, or got hurt, and that's how it, that's how it always ended. Um, when we were the ones not getting hurt or crying, uh, then wrestling nights stopped, and it was the other person in the room. We stopped. We haven't done wrestling in a long time because of that. One of the things about uh, watching wrestling on TV that I loved so much was the introductions. You know, if you were really cool, uh, you had a really cool theme song. And you came out with, uh, one of my favorite was The Undertaker, who just came out to that, that ominous bell that, sound, that said you were, he was coming to take your soul. Uh, but the fog and the smoke and the lights and all of that, the pageantry that led up to uh, fake wrestling, uh, I, I loved. If you, if you don't like wrestling, maybe you, if you've seen boxing or real wrestling, uh, there's always some sort of an introduction, maybe not a super cool theme song, uh, but there's some kind of an introduction. Here's this guy in this corner. He weighs this much. He's this tall. Here's his record. Here's this guy in the white trunks, and he's got this record. And we get to know who the people are in the match prior to the fight. At any rate, the wrestlers themselves or the fighters themselves have had the chance to get to know who it is they're squaring off against in the ring. 
Well, in Genesis 32, we, we get a wrestling match, and it comes right in the middle of this angst of Esau's coming. You remember at the beginning of chapter 32, uh, Jacob has re-entered the land and wants to reach out to his brother and make things right. And so he sends messengers to Esau that uh, I'm on my way and, and, and I'm, back, I'm coming back to the, to the land and I'd love to, to see you again and, and to find favor in your sight. And the, the news comes back that Esau is on his way and he's bringing 400 men with him. Jacob is in a crisis and we talked about the crisis mode last week. Well... Chapter 33 is when Esau actually shows up, and right in the middle of that, we have this nighttime wrestling event. But this is a different kind of a wrestling match, because we don't get an immediate introduction of the fighters. We know who Jacob is, but we have to gradually learn who it is that is stepping onto the mat against Jacob. This match has no spectators. It's just Jacob and his opponent. This is not an exhibition, exhibition match. There, there's something on the line. There's go, it's not fake wrestling. There is a physical toll that Jacob will have. This is meant to produce something in Jacob. The event that we have before us is a rather significant event. As we get to the end of the story, we will see that uh, this, was, this evening was commemorated in a special way because it had so much meaning. Now I'm going to, instead of reading all of it at the beginning, I want you and, 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 and me to put ourselves in the shoes of maybe a young Israelite child. Maybe you already know this story, and so it's easy for you to just jump ahead and pay attention, and you already know what's going on. But if you could put yourself in the place of a young child or maybe a parent uh, telling your young child this story for the very first time, even the way that the story is presented to us lends itself to a great story. If You don't know this story. You're listening and you're hanging on every word. You know about Jacob. You've already heard these stories of Jacob. And he's become a hero. He's the patriarch. Now he's fighting with someone. Who is attacking our forefather? What's going to happen to Jacob? And I want you to let yourself discover what the writer has intended for us to, to discover as we read. We are meant to here to pay attention to the fight as well as to the fighters. But what we find is we, as we hear the story told to us, we begin to form uh, an understanding of what's happening until we get to the end. And we're forced to go back and rethink the whole thing. I will, <coughs> excuse me, I will read just a few verses, a few verses at the beginning to set the stage, as it were, and then we will get right into it. Beginning in verse number uh, 22, the same night he, Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So far, in our discovery of this man named Jacob, he is described to us as what would be called today very self-reliant. In almost all of the stories that we have of Jacob so far, 
uh, either his physical strength or his mental superiority uh, plays an important role. Just to do a brief run-by of all of the things, consider verse, uh, the very first mention of, Joseph, of Jacob and Esau. They were wrestling in the womb. That's chapter 25. Then later on in chapter 25, Jacob swaps the birthright because of some uh, mental uh, acuity here. And then stealing the blessing in chapter 27, he was mentally superior to his brother. Then in chapter 29, as he comes to Haran and meets Rachel for the first time, he uh, moves the stone off of the well, uh, doing something that might require more than one person, but he definitely uh, displays his physical strength in that way. Then the mental aspect in chapter 30, he practiced these these weird selective breeding processes and techniques that uh, enable him to acquire all of Laban's wealth. Then in chapter 31, he tricks Laban uh, as he leaves Haran. All of these are either a physical or a mental uh, uh, superiority that Jacob possesses. And even in in our chapter here, we see that uh, he uses his brain to uh, figure out a way to pacify Esau's anger by presenting uh, these gifts. And then even in the story we have this morning, uh, he holds on all night to his opponent, will not let go. He is a self-reliant man. And as Jacob is preparing to re-enter the promised land and most immediately to meet his brother, he must learn how important it is for him to rely on God. God has always been real to him and present, but now he's becoming even more real. He is becoming uniquely present in this story. Up to this point, it was just visions and voices. Now, he has a hands-on experience, getting to know God in a very new way. And what we are going to see this morning is that this God both strengthens and weakens. This God both tests and sustains. This God resists and blesses. And I want us to consider, as we consider Jacob's story, I want us to consider how God wrestles with us in order to strengthen and weaken us. He strengthens us to do His will and weakens us so that we will rely on His power and not our own. We can see the story broken up into three divisions, and I want us to read and identify the clues given to us about who this mystery man is. It just simply says at the beginning of chapter, uh, of our, or the end of our first section there, that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now again, you already know the story. Don't jump ahead, but consider the clues that we are given as we read the story for the first time. Jacob is, has a lot on his mind. He knows that Esau is coming, and so he has made some preparations prior to this night, uh, and finally ends with sending his whole family across the river uh, to, the, this is the direction they have to go, and so he brings them all across, but then decides to go back across to be alone. I don't think that this is Jacob being a coward, hiding in the furthest 
uh, of the camp. This is Jacob wanting some time to, to, to think, wanting some time to prepare, to plan, uh, and, and to maybe to pray. He sends everybody else alone. Well, all of a sudden, and notice that there's no introduction, it's just, and a man wrestled with him. Where did this man come from? Why is the man wrestling with Jacob? What's going on? And, and even as you're hearing this, this, this Israelite child is hearing this for the first time, they're no doubt asking, I thought it said Jacob was alone. I thought he, I thought he, was, he, was, he was in a safe place. Esau surely hasn't come in the night and attacked him. Who could this be? Jacob doesn't have time to be wrestling with this guy, whoever he is. He's got a lot on his plate. He's got to prepare for Esau, who is uh, obviously going to come in the morning in, in verse 1 of chapter 33. What's going on here? But this here is our first clue. The last place that we have where Jacob is, uh, is with his family, in this place he called God's camp in verse number 2. He called it Machanaim, which he said, this is God's camp. Why? Because the angels of God had met him there. So this is our first clue. Then, in verses 25 down to 29, we see this wrestling match uh, goes all night long. When the man saw that he didn't prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. So he, he, there's a little bit more to this section that we'll look at in just a moment here. But we find that the man, his opponent, blesses Jacob and changes his name here. But think about how we got to this point. Because they've been wrestling, fighting, grappling all night long. They've got to be tired. They've, they've done all their moves. They know all, Jacob's tried everything he's done. And it says, not that Jacob didn't prevail, but that the man didn't prevail. And he touched Jacob's hip. Now this word touched could mean literally he touched his hip or that he struck it. It's used, the same word is used in both, in both contexts. But one way or the other, this man has injured Jacob. And we've got to ask the question, why did he wait until now? It's morning time. Why, if he possessed this kind of power, why didn't he do this at the beginning? Is Jacob really this strong? I mean, I've, I've, I couldn't last uh, an entire night uh, fighting for my life with someone like this and still have the energy at the end to, he says he wouldn't, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I mean, Jacob is, is, a, is, a, is a strong fighter. He's stubborn and determined. But this is actually one of our, our, our clues. Just how strong is this man? Just how powerful is this opponent that Jacob is wrestling with? Morning is coming. Dawn approaches. And the man says, let me go. And Jacob says, I won't let you go until you bless me. Now, if this is opponent has not prevailed over Jacob all night, and now the man is saying, let me go, it kind of leads us to believe that Jacob is at least holding his own or possibly winning. But Jacob is desiring a blessing from this man who, as it seems, 
cannot prevail over him. So he asks the name. The man asks Jacob, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. And then he says in verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Here's another clue. He changes Jacob's name. Now, if you remember, Jacob was first named Jacob because of the, the grabbing of his brother's heel at birth. And that's what Jacob meant, and that's why they named it. It also later on was used, Esau said he's rightly named Jacob because he cheated me. But his mother wasn't calling him a cheater. That's probably not the most maternal instinct to name your son uh, like setting him up for failure. Let's call this one axe murderer. No, you don't do that. You you, uh, there, there was, there was, it was a significant event that happened in the moment. that he grabbed his brother's heel. Let's call him Yaakov. Okay, so this is, this is um, the dual meaning of his name, though. And we can see both of these things at play. Well, Israel has its own meaning as well. And that's why he's getting his name changed. And in fact, Israel has a double meaning. Israel can mean he who fights with God. And it can also just mean God fights. Now, those are two different things. But they both have a significance. Now we see that he was named Israel because, in verse 28, you have striven or you have fought with God and with men and have prevailed. So wait a minute. Jacob's the winner? Jacob has won the match? And he fought with God? Now Jacob asks him for his name, and he, he won't give him his name, but he does bless him. But this mystery opponent is becoming a little bit clearer to us as we go through. Finally, we see in verse number 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now, Peniel means before the face of God. And so that he's naming this place just like Mahanaim means double camp. Now Peniel is a significant place to him. And he's, and he's remembering, there I saw the face of God. But this doesn't sound like a victory speech. This doesn't sound like Jacob standing up, beating his chest and going, I'm the winner. It kind of sounds like he realizes how lucky he is. He's not saying, I won. He's saying, he let me win. In fact, he let me live. He could have done a lot more. I realize who it is that I've been fighting all night. Years later, the prophet Hosea will commemorate this event. In Hosea 12, in verse 3, it says that in the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. Now just as a sidebar for those of us who are familiar with this, and we th thought about these things a lot more uh, than we just are in this moment here, uh, there are a lot of questions. This is a great example of a passage in scripture that gives us more questions than answers. Who is God that is wrestling with Jacob? Is this Jesus pre-incarnate? Is this Jesus come pre-Bethlehem or is this an angel? Like Hosea says it was, just an angel in the authority and the, and the, um, uh, with the power of, of, the, of an angel, but with the authority of God. We've seen many times that angels are not uh, 
evenly matched with, with human beings. They're far more powerful. Uh, so who is this? And did Jacob actually see God's face? Because other places in Scripture say uh, no man can see God at any time. God tells Moses, you can't see my face and live. But for all of those questions, for us to get the plain meaning of this particular text, we are simply meant to dwell on the fact that this is God. Okay? So there, there is a place to think through that, and, and there are some more implications that go along with, with those kinds of questions. But if we're going to get this text right here, all Moses, the writer, wants us to think about is the fact that he wrestled with God and had a hands-on, face-to-face encounter with God. Now, what exactly that is, Moses isn't interested in telling us about that right now. He just wants us to know that he wrestled with God. And he commemorated the place with the name Peniel because he has seen God face-to-face, and yet my life has been delivered. Then, in this third part, the sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, just another name for Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. In the morning, Jacob crosses the river, limping because of the injury, and Jacob is a changed man. Not just physically, not just because of the, the hip thing, but because of the event that happened in the middle of the night. Very soon, he will face Esau. But he's ready for it now. And his descendants will observe this night with this dietary restriction. It didn't find its way into the law, but it, is, it was a restriction that the Jews had placed upon themselves. Now we as the reader who have heard this story and thinking about it for that first time realize who it was that had stepped into the ring against Jacob. It was not Satan. It was not Esau. It was God. And now we have to rethink everything. Because is Jacob really that tough? I mean, I, I thought that God was all-powerful. I thought that God could do anything. I thought that God could create the heavens and the earth with just his words. And yet one of his created image bearers is giving him this much trouble? Or is God up to something else? Obviously, we are not meant to be impressed with Jacob's strength and tenacity and determination as we read this story. Maybe as we're reading through it, we're thinking, wow, this Jacob is tough. And then we get down to the end and we find out he's playing, he's wrestling against God. We're not impressed with Jacob anymore. We're, 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 we're thinking about a, a four-year-old fighting with his dad and thinking he's winning and realizing dad's letting him win. Obviously, God has not met his match Against Jacob, he's up to something. John Calvin asked the question appropriately in his commentary. He says, Who is able to stand against an antagonist at whose breath alone all flesh perishes and vanishes away? At whose look the mountains melt? At whose word or beck the whole world is shaken to pieces? And therefore, to attempt the least contest with him would be insane temerity. I mean, if Jacob knew who was in the ring, if he had gotten the pre-introduction and the theme song and the fog and the lights, Jacob would not have run into the ring. He would have run away. He would have fallen down and pinned himself. When God said, let go, he would have let go. But he didn't know. And, and, and here is the, 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 the light bulb moment as I was reading through it this week. Even while Jacob is wrestling against God, 
Or we can say, as God is wrestling against Jacob, God is supplying the strength for Jacob to wrestle against God. So God is wrestling Jacob and giving Jacob the strength to wrestle against him. God sustains everything in this world, which means that if God had decided to take all the energy from Jacob, he wasn't holding on anymore. Jacob does not have grit and fortitude apart from what God has given to him. So then why the long struggle? What is God's reason for letting this, this thing go all night? And why does he need to get up before the, the dawn? It's not like God doesn't want to be seen, so he's waiting for the, he's got to get out of there before the sun comes up. I, we, we now read this as if God has said, all right, lesson is over, the sun is up, let me go. You've learned the lesson I'm going to give you. I think that we see here that, 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 that the long struggle is for Jacob's sake so that he would learn as he goes forward from here to depend on God. I think that we have here an example for Israel to follow because they are going to go into the wilderness and they are going to meet opposition. And of course, above all things, this is for God's glory and for His purpose. Israel will find themselves one day on the edge of the promised land. And they know that they're going to encounter opposition. And they're going to come up against enemies who are bigger and better and more numerous than they are. And they needed to learn from this example. Because God named him Israel. And the nation bore that name. And they were reminded he fought with God and God fights. We see that all throughout the Scriptures. Jacob fought with God and prevailed by divine mercy. But really, what Israel needed to learn was that God was fighting for them. And if you could do a search throughout the Old Testament, you see the phrase, God will fight for you. Our God will fight for us. All throughout, as they would go into battle, they were reminded, God is fighting for us. He is fighting our battles. Nehemiah 4.20, he tells the people there, our God will fight for us as they rebuilt the wall and defended themselves. In Exodus 14, as they stood on the edge of the, of the Red Sea, Moses tells the people, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. In Deuteronomy 1.30, it says, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness, where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. You're going to find enemies they're going to find opposition, and they're going to be tough, and they're going to be bigger than them. They're going to be Goliaths. They're going to be Philistines. They're going to be Assyrians. They're going to be Babylonians. They're all going to be bigger and stronger than you. But God will fight for you. Remember what kept them out of the promised land the first time around? They said, they're bigger than us. We can't beat them. And what did Joshua and Caleb say? God will fight them for us. God will win for us. And they didn't believe, and they were punished. They didn't go in. Later on, what were they told? God will fight for you. So they believed, and they won. God is always stepping into the ring himself or sending someone as an opponent to refine his people. And he's doing it to simultaneously weaken and strengthen his people. Now think about that for a moment. God is always getting into the ring with his people, struggling with us to strengthen us and to weaken us. 
Someone once said, here's the paradox of the human condition vividly summed up. On the one hand, God allows, even puts his people into difficult and impossible situations, but it's the same God who delivers us from them. See, God's not just interested in getting us out of trouble. He puts us in it, too. The trouble that you face, God could have just kept you from it, but he can't deliver you from something he doesn't put you in. God brought Jacob into this crisis. He brought him from Haran to this place. God brought Jake, uh, Esau up from Seir. God brought the crisis to Jacob, but he also delivered him from it. God brought his people into Egypt so that he could bring them out for his glory. God brought his son to the cross, but delivered him from Sheol and delivered him to the throne of David. See, God knows what he's doing in our lives. He knows the pain that he plans for us. It isn't warm hearts like, I know the plans I have for you. But it's just as true. God knows the pain he plans for you. And he gives it a purpose. God is not simply interested in making our lives easy or smooth or happy. He brings the struggle, even getting into the ring himself, to strengthen and to weaken us. So God supplies both the test and the strength to endure it. God wrestles with us. In order to weaken our self-reliance, in order to strengthen us to do his purpose for his glory. Because there is the aspect that we need to do something and we get that strength from the the strength that he supplies and that strength that he supplies comes in the struggle. Consider just a few New Testament examples in just a a few moments that that I want to take for this. If you can turn quickly over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 13. Most of you, many of you may have this uh, memorized. It talks about this temptation. It talks about the the testing, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, meaning what you're facing, someone else has, it's not new to you. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. One word jumped out to me. I've I've memorized this verse since I was a kid. A word jumped out to me this this week that I had never really paid attention to. It's the word also. He will also make the way of escape. Also means in addition to something. What's the other thing that God has done? The temptation. The test. And also the way of escape. God never tempts us to sin. And that's not what he's getting after here because it says later in other passages that he cannot be tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt other people, but he does test his people to strengthen and to weaken. The strengthening part we see in verses like Philippians 4.13, I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We also see the weakening aspect when Jesus said in John 15.5, without me you can do nothing. You can do all things, but not without me. Without me, you can't do anything. 
We sang a minute ago, without you I fall apart. We had read to us 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and in that, Paul writes that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And with that understanding, he can say, so I glory in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in me. And he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. We learn about that in the struggle. So if you are going through a struggle, or when you're going through the struggle, you need to realize something very, very important. God is with you. We've said that many times. But let's be clear from this story in Genesis 32. What exactly is God doing with me? He's on the mat against me. And he's in my corner for me. He's against me and he's for me. All for his glory and for my good. His constant presence means that he's there with you in the struggle. He's not hoping that you're going to make it out okay. He's not trying to figure out how he's going to deliver you from this. He's not wondering why it even happened. He's not only present in your struggle, but he's responsible for it. We need to realize that he's in the ring, weakening us, teaching us to rely on his strength, as he did with Jacob, as he did with Paul. We need to realize that he's in the ring, strengthening us, preparing us to do his purpose, preparing Jacob to meet Esau, preparing Jacob to go into the land, preparing Israel to go into the promised land, testing. We see it most beautifully displayed in, in the life of Christ, the perfect man who was tested, tested in the wilderness. And he passed the test. Perfectly relied on the Father. Calvin again is helpful. He says that we don't fight against him except by his own power and with his own weapons. For he, having challenged us to this contest, at the same time furnishes us with the means of resistance. So that he both fights against us and for us. While he assails us with one hand, he defends us with the other. While he lightly opposes us, he supplies invincible strength whereby we overcome. So think about this, the test that you're in, the struggle that you're going through, does not mean you're being punished. But as you are, you're not ready for the next thing. So the struggle has been brought to refine you, to put you to the test, to put you through the fire, to break you down, to build you back up. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't roll over and play dead. Don't give up. Don't quit. In the strength that God supplies, struggle. Persevere. Hold on fast. And at the same time that you're holding on, depend on the strength that is not your own. Jacob left that morning the end of that match, exhausted and completely changed from the man he was that night. He entered as Jacob. He left as Israel. He entered healthy and strong. He walked away limping. He entered the ring very confident, self-reliant, 
but he walked away depending more on God. And as God brings us into various struggles and trials, may we learn the same lessons as Jacob. To rely on God, to seek his blessing, to seek his strength, and then to be prepared to serve God's purpose and seek his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us struggles. Probably someone who doesn't understand your purpose and your word find that strange that we can thank you for hard times. We thank you because you show yourself very strong in those hard times. You show us how weak we are, how insufficient we are, how foolish it is to rely on ourselves and our wisdom and our strength and our power and our resources. But you, in your infinite wisdom and power, display at the same time that you can give us all that we need so that we might look to you, trust in you, and by doing so, give you glory. So help us, please. As we sang a little while ago, Lord, we need you. Keep that phrase, that, that, that thought in our minds as we go this week. For those who are struggling, give them strength, please. Give them strength to persevere, to hold on, to rely on your strength. Father, we desire to see you clearly in the pages of Scripture as we read this. You have made yourself known to us as a very loving and wise and powerful God. May we trust you more because of it. May those whom you have called to yourself and those who you have yet to make or yet to call, they come to see you are this God who does all things for a purpose and brings us to places that are tough and difficult so that you can deliver us and make us into who you want us to be. We don't pretend to understand it all. We don't pretend to understand all the reasons. We look to you because you said that you do. and You have them. And though you don't share them with us, we trust you. Because you've proven yourself faithful. You've proven yourself good. May our lives then bring glory to you as we struggle. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.